0: If you would, please take a copy of God's word. Turn to the book of Ephesians one more time. Ephesians chapter six, um, excuse me, verses 10 through 24, Ephesians 6, 10 through 24. If you uh, don't have a copy of God's word with you this morning, the inside cover of the bulletin has the scripture printed. And uh, if you grab one of the black books, those are the pew Bibles, red ones are hymnals. Page 979, you should be able to find it there. Ephesians 6, again, verses 10 through 24. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant and inspired word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers. In love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. Thus ends the reading of God's word, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider it. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, would you help us? To see the glories of your name, the glories of your word, the glories of your truth revealed to us, help us see our sin, how we fall short, but help us see our great Savior who gives us strength, who saves us from all our sin and sorrow. We pray it in Jesus' great name. Amen. Well, doctor, what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? It's what they asked Benjamin Franklin after the Constitutional Convention in 1787. Some of you might know his answer. A republic, if you can keep it. A republic, if you can keep it. It's a great gift, a republic, is it not? You see, if you've never experienced taxation without representation, you may forget that. may also forget the need to keep it. But this is not a civics lesson nor a sermon about civic engagement. Yes, as a side note, be active in the civic process. Advocate for laws that bring glory to God and know that you're not going to win every battle. Politics is, after all, the art of the possible. But the church is the realm of the impossible, the miraculous, is it not? Isn't that what Paul says in Ephesians 3, that passage we often use for a benediction? Chapter 3, verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Isn't it amazing? Paul has three more chapters of stuff to say after that. Far more abundantly, to him be glory in the church. The theme of Ephesians Is the church glorious if you can keep it? The church glorious if you can keep it. And some of you are saying, wait, if you can keep it? Doesn't God keep the church? Good question. God loves his church more than we do. Praise the Lord for that because if it all depended on us, we'd be in trouble, would we not? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Tell me, is that about you or me or all of us? Of course, God keeps the church. Jude 24, another famous benediction or doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. But just a few verses before, God has called us to keep ourselves in the love of God. God has given us a glorious gift in the church. Where would you be without it? Now before you nitpick and tell us, well, you know, the church is not, if there was no church at all, No body of Christ anywhere in the world, where would you have heard the good news of salvation? Would you still be walking in darkness? We have a gift, and while God promises to guard it, He also wants us to keep it, to guard it, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why is that? Because we were chosen in Christ before time began, made alive when we were dead in our sins, united into a diverse body, Jew and Gentile, so that we might display unity and purity both in the church and in our families. That's Ephesians 1, 1 through chapter 6, verse 9. And now, one more sermon on Ephesians. We see this. For the church to meet and maintain her glorious ideal, she must use all the tools God has given, including encouragement, fellowship in God's word, and yes, the armor of God. All of life requires vigilance and discipline. Maybe they're disciplines of peace. Maybe they're disciplines of prayer. Now, only two points today. We have some subpoints. you might have noticed. The first one is going to take most of our time. We see first the armor that God supplies in verses 10 through 20. We're going to talk about the enemy that makes that armor necessary and the army, the people of God, who are engaged in a war, whether they realize it or not, and how they should conduct themselves. Why do we need armor? Well, because there's an enemy. We'll discuss him here for a few moments in verses 10 through 13. Let's read verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You may be exhausted right now. I've talked to many of you who are in every stage of life, every stage of maturity. Maybe you're sick. Maybe you're weary. Maybe it's something else. Is it because I've beaten you up lately, challenging you to be an obedient child, a good parent, a good husband, good wife, someone who strives for holiness regardless of your age and stage in life? Now, I I sincerely hope I haven't beaten you up. On one level, I don't think I'm doing anything different. I'm always trying to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Always want to remind us of God's high and holy standard. Always want us to know that we have a gracious Savior who can forgive us when we fail, who can give us strength to try again to change for the better. As the hymn says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Now we may be beaten up by hearing all that, but that wasn't my intention, I promise. I do want to build us up in God's strength and not our own. And yet, if God's holy law is bringing us to the end of ourselves, when all we can do is beg for more of his grace, then then that's not so bad, is it? Needing forgiving grace and sustaining grace. Another way we might say it, we need the Lord's strength. We need to be strong in the Lord through union with Christ, an abiding relationship with the only one who can give us the spiritual strength that we need. We're not strong enough on our own to do all that we're called to do, which is why we need to be strong in the Lord. It's why as well we should do this. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We'll cover the armor in detail soon but why do we need armor well without it we won't be able to stand against the schemes of the devil we have an enemy his defeat is already settled but he's still fighting fighting until the end what's his goal well whatever is opposed to god's desires it's it's not that hard sometimes to think about this is it whatever is opposed to god's desires chaos destruction in the church like the joker in the dark night, some men just want to watch the world burn. Satan wants the church to burn, to crumble. That's his scheme. The Greek word sounds like method. It's a method to his madness, to Satan's madness. And that same Greek word appears in Second 2 Corinthians 2.11. It says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are ignorant of his Designs or schemes, methods, same word. And what's interesting to me is the previous verse, you know what it's talking about? It's talking, Second 2 Corinthians 2.10, about forgiveness between Paul and one of his church plants. The spiritual warfare may, may involve powerful, unseen forces. It may be high above our pay grade in one sense, but its carnage may be very easily seen. Moving on, verse 12, it says, for we do not wrestle against flesh in blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But the battle is not between <clears throat> you and another human. You notice how Paul progresses here. He talks about schemes of Satan to rulers and authorities. Along the way, he says, it's not against flesh and blood. It's not against human powers ultimately. No, it's something greater than that. Something that's under the power of Satan. None of these powers of course are greater than God's power, but for reasons that God has not fully revealed to us, they have power in this world. And we're foolish to not remember that. Remember 1 John 5:19. He says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. How different is that from Ephesians 6.12, where Paul says our battle, it's against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Darkness implying sin and unbelief. Present darkness, meaning the darkness we live in. That's why we're called to be salt and light in this world. Salt, which preserves light, which gives life. There are cosmic spiritual powers that are operating in this world. Now, don't be confused by the last phrase. There are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's not saying the power stays in the heavenly places and it never touches down here on earth. He's saying that's where it originated from, just like Satan and his fellow fallen angels. Now, could you draw a picture of all these powers? Would you be able to spot them around town, do proper threat assessment? Probably not, but that's not the point, is it? This reminds me, when I was pursuing a, a D-Min degree, that's short for doctor of ministry, I told one of our deacons about my upcl- upcoming D-Min class. He looked at me like he'd seen a ghost. Because what he heard me say was, Demon class, D-E-M-O-N. Now, I can't perform an exorcism. I hope none of you are disappointed. But that reaction, the fear, was proper. It was appropriate. The main reason Paul shares this with us is to put us on notice, to warn us, to make sure we aren't complacent. John Stott says, there's a lot of things we don't know about these powers, these authorities, but here's what we do know. They're powerful, they're wicked, they're cunning. Paul doesn't just want to stoke our curiosity, he wants to warn us. He wants us to realize that if God wants a whole new society, Satan wants to destroy it. Then instead of unity, he wants division. Instead of purity, he wants sin. God's given us a church if you can keep it. So how do we respond? Be strong in the Lord. Put on the whole armor of God, and that's what we see starting in verse 13, the armor proper, verses 13 through 17. Let's just read 13 for now. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Between verses 11 through 14, Paul says, stand or withstand or even stand firm in some English translations four times. That's our goal to stand, to withstand the enemy. We have a church glorious, if we can keep it, by God's grace, with all of God's tools, including all the armor that he's given us. The enemy is is great, but God's power is greater. He can get us through even the evil day. Does that mean one intense day or all of the intense days between the first and second comings of Christ? Remember, Ephesians 5.16 talked about this, because the days are evil, days, plural. Now, I'm not sure if one sense here excludes the other. Many days will seem like the evil day as long as the evil days continue till we see our blessed hope, whenever that is. But in the meantime, we have armor. We have God's help. Verse 14 says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, Paul might have been chained to a Roman soldier as he wrote this letter, as he wrote this right here. He mentions the armor and the order that a soldier would have had to get dressed, armed, girded, put it on. There's at least a rough correspondence between certain armor and certain qualities of God's protection. Paul names the tools God has given us, literal or metaphorical, to help us to continue to stand. And first, there's truth. Probably meaning both absolute truth, doctrinal truth, theological truth, biblical truth, and, and inner truth, sincerity, integrity. Without these, you have no anchor, no foundation. Next, righteousness. Does he mean a righteous life? Now, that's certainly a good thing that we should strive for, but I kind of think he may be talking about the righteousness of God that clothes us, that covers our sin. After all, what is one of Satan's favorite tools? Isn't it to remind us of all the sins, the acts of unrighteousness that we've committed? And by the way, friends, that's not going away. You see, as you grow in Christ, you will be more godly, but you will also, part of being more godly is noticing your sin more, hating your sin more. So you need to be able to do what Martin Luther did. He rested upon the sacrifice of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, which had made satisfaction for his sins. Jesus Christ the righteous was the solution, the refuge, the high tower. When Luther's guilt was thrown in his face, you might have, I know you've heard me say this before, from Luther, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you do, You deserve death and hell. Tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be with him. The righteousness of Christ credited to us, though we don't deserve it. It's our armor against Satan's attacks. Verse 15 talks about and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Is this readiness to share the gospel, to go where we need to go, another weapon against Satan's assault on our world? Probably. But it is, it is also, notice, called the gospel of peace. If we walk in the gospel that we proclaim to others, it brings peace that passes understanding not only an absence of conflict, but fullness of blessing. Just this week, my old friend Ian, current RUF campus minister to international students at Northwestern University, former member of our college Bible study in Clinton, Mississippi, he told a story in his newsletter about a new believer in Christ. Nicole, it's not a real name. I don't know her real name. Nicole grew up not knowing if her future would be secure. She was always unsure, part of a tradition she grew up in. I don't know what that was exactly, but she said, when I finally understood the gospel, it felt like I could finally breathe because she understood the gospel of peace, the security it brings. Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one Remember what Luther said, Satan will come with his darts, reminders of past sin, new temptation, probably more, he has schemes, he, he's smart. But faith in Christ, faith in all of God's promises gives us a better hope, a truer hope than whatever the lies of Satan are. It's part of his strategy, he lies. He tells you, you'll be okay if you do this. This will be better than what God's Word says because of some twisted logic that sounds right in the moment. Verse 17, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Helmets guard your head, including your brain, including your mind, right? And the hope of salvation can guard us against Satan's seeds of doubt and despair. He tries to convince us that the worst-case scenario is inevitable, But we know Christ's victory is what's inevitable, that Jesus wins, and so do we if we hope in Christ, believe in His Word. Lastly, he talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the only offensive weapon, some say, that Paul mentions. Of course, even this can be used for defense, like Jesus did. How did Jesus defend the assault of Satan, his three temptations in the wilderness? Satan misquoted Scripture out of context, twisting the meaning, trying to cajole him into unwise decisions. He didn't realize he never stood a chance, but he tried anyway. And Jesus, in return, accurately quoted Scripture, the Word of God, the sword, of the Spirit to show Satan that he was wrong, the sword of the word, helped him see through the lies of Satan and helped him to stand firm in the end. Why can't you and I do that more today than we did yesterday? I mean, I could be wrong. There might even be a ministry in our lobby with information about how to help you do that. It was a joke, sword fighters. You can find the stuff out there. That's the armor of God that helps defend the church and her members. The church glorious, if you can keep it, by God's grace. And having seen the armor, let's see how we continue to fight. We see next the army, the army in verses 17 through 20. The army is us, it's Christians. Those who fight, those who put on the armor of God and use it. Notice after Paul mentions the armor, uh, it's not even a new sentence at the beginning of verse 18, he says, Jesus loves us anyway. Now, why do I say that? Think about what's going on here. Paul's in prison. and After mentioning this huge cosmic spiritual battle, what does he ask them to pray for? The guy in prison? Uh, Pray for all the saints. Those who, what are saints? Those who are made holy in Christ through faith in Christ. He says, pray for everybody else. And then he, he does ask for prayer for himself, doesn't he? And he doesn't even ask to get out of jail. I think he wanted to get out of jail. Maybe that was just understood, but it's not what he says. He says, pray that I will share the gospel boldly, accurately, which by the way, is what got me in prison in the first place. Paul's more sanctified than you and me. I, I'm not shocked by that. I hope you aren't either. But doesn't Paul's example motivate us? How do we keep, how do we maintain the church glorious? Well, we, what have we said? We recognize the enemy. We put on our armor. We remind ourselves. <clears throat> through God's word about the truth, the righteousness of God that closes us, the gospel that brings peace, the shield of faith that clings to Jesus while he attacks, the helmet of salvation that guards our mind from falsehood. We do all that, and then we pray at all times, short prayers in the moment with a consistent pattern of prayer as well, with all prayer and supplication, with all perseverance. Now, most people I know feel guilty that they don't pray more. Me too. One thing that recently helped me is I started to keep prayer cards, daily ones, weekly ones, monthly ones, thanks to Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life. Now, in short, I got so overwhelmed with so many prayer requests that I I lost track. I got discouraged. I didn't persevere enough. So at first, I, I shortened my list so that I could be consistent. I started adding stuff prayed for less frequently. It's my best advice if you're discouraged about your consistency in prayer or listen to everything Dale said a few moments ago. We didn't coordinate that, by the way. The Holy Spirit did. This is what we're called to, persistent, persevering prayer. I will not let go until you bless me. That's how we keep the church glorious instead of messy, how we keep it glorious. We persevere in prayer for ourselves, for our families, for one another. And I would beg you, pray for your church leaders. We know we need it. We know that a lot of you are hurting and we're doing what we can to help, to pray. And you might think, oh, there's so much going on. I don't want to add one more thing. Or maybe my thing seems smaller. We would rather know your true struggles, even if we're not sure how to help yet. We'd rather know. We want to know. Persevere in prayer. Pray for boldness to proclaim the gospel. You know, boldness doesn't have to be loud. Boldness just needs to follow through. Boldness wants to find the opening for gospel conversation. It doesn't always burst through where there's no opening, but it asks God to help you find the opening. In prison or the PTO meeting, wherever you live, work, and play. Those are the tools That God has given us an awareness of the enemy, the armor of God, prayers to God, proclamation of the gospel. I pray that we use them. He's given us a church if we can keep it by his grace with all the tools he's given us. Praise God for them. Praise God for the glorious possibility that is the church, the place where the impossible happens, the place where salvation happens. And that's the armor that God supplies. But we have one more thing to see in this letter. We see the daily battles God's people face. The daily battles God's people face in verses 21 through 24. All those famous verses are past us now. So we may be tempted to just skip over these last four. That'd be a mistake. Because you see, life isn't always big, dramatic moments. Sometimes it's mundane daily battles that still require our faithfulness. We see here itineraries and encouragement in verses 21 and 22, let's read that. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Might sound kind of mundane, right? Well, somebody's coming know how I am, I'll update you, blah, 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 until you remember that Paul planted this church, probably led many of them to Christ, and that it's Paul who's in prison. Now think of the person, all of you, think of the person whom you consider a father in the faith, maybe somebody who led you to faith in Christ, might be your actual father, praise the Lord if it is, Now imagine your father of the faith in prison. How would you react? Despair? Anger? Wondering if Christianity is still worth it? First century Christians may have felt the same way. What kept them from despair and other thoughts like that? Maybe a faithful minister like Tychicus who was willing to travel to see other Christians to encourage them. In the face of discouraging circumstances, knowing a letter's good, words are good, but maybe personal attention is good too. What you might call the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary way that God delivers us from despair and grows us in grace. Just another one of the daily battles that God's people face, which we're called to withstand through all the good gifts that God gives us. In the way In case we've forgotten about those gifts, Paul gives us a final reminder, our last sub-point, incorruptible blessings. Incorruptible blessings. Read verse 23. It says, Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He wishes them peace once again. The guy in prison wishes his fellow Christians peace. He reminds them of the love they have, which is given by God, which is also reinforced and fed by their faith in God a love for God, which leads to a love for one another, just another tool to maintain the glorious church that God has given. And then he wishes them grace. But the wording gets a wee bit confusing here. Read verse 24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. It, is the grace incorruptible, the grace that he gives, is it incorruptible? Or, or is it grace only for those who love God, that their love is incorruptible. Does is that, that make sense? Is it, is it, if your love for God is incorruptible, then I'm wishing grace to you. Is, is the grace incorruptible, or is he saying, if your love is incorruptible, you'll receive grace? Now, which one is it? In one sense, doesn't it have to be both? Because on the one hand, Paul is not promising grace to lawless men and women, Right? Is there anything in his letter so far? Anything in all of Scripture that gives us that idea? I think that's the main sense of the verse, reinforced by Ephesians 5 5. You don't even have to flip the page. For you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. There's hope for repentant sinners repentant sinners, those who turn from sin and turn to Jesus. That's the whole reason we're here. There's no hope for those who don't repent, for those who don't turn from sin, for those who continually rebel against God. But in Ephesians 1 and 2, what else do we learn about this grace that that Paul talks so much about? Ephesians 1 and 2, Paul talks about the grace that saves, the God who chose us before the world began. And then Ephesians 1 13 and 14, he reminds us that we have been sealed. A seal is secure, right? We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And then in the next verse, he says, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This grace comes from God that saves you. It will never corrupt. It will never perish. It will never die out. Grace itself is incorruptible, but grace is only promised to those whose love for God proves to be not perfect, but incorruptible and enduring to the end. Now, I think the translation, the paraphrase of William Hendrickson captures all this best. He says about this final verse, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love which, once present, can never Perish. You see, the good news is not if you try hard enough, you'll make it, you'll be worthy. No, the good news is that irresistible grace has sought you and found you if you're in Christ, that incorruptible love will keep you to the end. The good news is that you're part of the church glorious. You can keep it by God's grace. And if you're worried that you've blown it, that you've missed your best chance, God can keep you. God can keep her. God loves his church more than you do, which is why he's given us all these tools, armor, encouragement, the word, prayer, and more. He's given us his strength so that when we've done all that we can do, we can stand by his grace because he will keep his people from stumbling, because he will build and keep his church till the end. Let us pray. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, be that right now for all of us. Be our help, be our hope. Father, if we've stumbled and need to get back up, would you extend your gracious hand and pick us up? Father, if we're worried, we're falling, we're struggling, would you take your gracious hand and keep us on course? If we're worried that we've never really been part of the church invisible, the true people of God, born again from the heart, we, we've not really been part of these things that we've been talking about today. But we want to be. If there's anyone who feels that way, Father, would you take your gracious hand and reassure them? and guide them safely into your kingdom once and for all. God, be with us. We want to strive to maintain peace and unity and purity within your church. And Father, we know that we can't do it without your help. So be with us and guide us from now till the day of eternity, the day when we see you face to face. We ask it all in Jesus' great name. Amen.